0: The and Golf Network is proudly supported by the Golf Society. The Golf Society is founded on the belief that the latest golf trends, fashion and concepts shouldn't be compromised, but shared with every golfer. Shop online at www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash Talkin' Golf. I could
1: take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I still have a rich full life but the last tee shot I hit was more like it that one in the playoff against Biden and Ray that's right The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy.
0: Welcome to episode 28 of the Talking Golf History podcast. In part two of the history of Donald Ross. On this episode, Bradley Klein dives deeper into the history of one of the greatest golf architects of all time. Let's join in where we left off in episode 27. Folks, thanks for joining us again. This is a continuation of episode 27, The History of Donald Ross with Bradley Klein. Bradley, thank you again for staying on the line, or if we can pretend that you came back and did this, people won't know the difference because it'll be a week separated. But thank you so much for coming in and and diving back into Donald Ross.
1: Um, I ran out of coffee, but uh, I don't. I have any problem. That's great, and I um, appreciate your interest.
0: If you fall asleep, I'll just yell. I, I've been told I project real well, so we'll be fine. Um Let's start right off, right? Let's just jump right into the life of Donald Ross. What do we know about Donald Ross's early upbringing, and was golf always in the cards for him as a boy?
1: Donald Ross uh, was born in uh, the town of Dornoch in North Scotland, and um he lived... um half mile from the uh, clubhouse or the first tee of the, what was then the Dornick golf club. And by the way, let's just be clear. He was not associated with Royal Dornick golf club because it didn't become Royal till 1906, by which time Ross was in the United States, but he was uh, in a kind of a poor working class family. His father was an alcoholic Mason. It's a great combination. Did stonework and, uh, his father actually worked on the state capitol building in Albany, New York, and um, came home with no money. They were a little upset about that. But uh, in any case, uh, a working family, uh, and uh, he uh, had two brothers, um, uh, one of whom uh, won a U.S. Open, the other one who helped build uh, some of his golf courses. Uh, so it's a golf family, but uh, Ross was born there in November of 1872, he left uh, school in about the uh, the age of 12 or 13, was an apprentice carpenter in town, and started caddying and playing at Dornick Golf Club. And when old Tom Morris came to redesign the golf course, Ross was out there watching him and apparently became fascinated. And... Uh, he was an accomplished enough player, and by the age of twenty, he was uh, down at Pinehurst. Uh, I'm sorry, at um, uh, he was down at St. Andrews, apprenticing under Old Tom Morris on greenkeeping and on club making.
0: Do we know how that came about that apprenticeship? I mean, is that something where Donald Ross approaches him? Does he approach? Uh, I'm sorry, does Donald Ross approach Old Tom Morris or vice versa? Do we know how that worked back then?
1: uh it would no there's no documentation uh in fact there's a, there's a lot of speculation because Ross was apparently away from Dornoch for 2 years it's pretty well established that the first year he was at St Andrews i've seen different accounts of where he was the, the second year some claims Carnoustie some claim St Andrews it's not clear so and you know the written record didn't exist uh But, and I don't have, I forget the name of the year, but uh, the year, but Ross uh, certainly had watched uh, old Tom Morris when they redesigned uh, Dornick Golf Course. I think it was 1893. Uh, It would have taken a conversation uh, more like, or or it would have been the recommendation of the longtime club secretary, John Sutherland, who would have been dealing directly with um, uh, old Tom Morris. And uh, at that time... Ross himself, as a youngster uh, would have been certainly noticed as a, a skilled golfer, and because of his training as a carpenter, would have understood uh, the capabilities of building wooden shafted clubs oh sure so so my bet is, and it's pure speculation uh, that it was a matter of a recommendation through donald's uh, through um, John Sutherland, the secretary
0: what What do we know about that apprenticeship? Do we know what it entailed? No that um, I don't have any
1: photography. Uh, all I know is he went down. And in those days, it was a big trip. Uh, the mileage uh, would have taken probably a day and a half to get there. For, this way, you're going through the highlands or around through Aberdeen. So, uh, you know, you would take a train down through Inverness. Whatever it was, uh, it would have been a big journey, and he would have left his parents and um, come home uh, probably on holidays. But, no, there's no record of uh, – And Ross never really documented much of what was going on. All we know is that by about uh, 1895 or six, I think it was, he was back as the head golf professional and clubmaker and greenkeeper at Dornick. So that's all we know.
0: And this probably answers this listener question. We had a listener question from Keith McColl. And his question was, Bradley, is there any evidence or, or what are your thoughts? Let's just switch around this question. What are your thoughts on the possibility of Donald Ross helping old Tom Morris in the famously rediscovered course of Askernish, could that be a possibility?
1: Uh, I've seen that there are some people who claim they see a photograph with Ross. Um, there's no way to know. Uh, all I know is it would have taken him a week to get there from Dornick, and um, you know you can speculate. This is one of the things that happens. By the way, I get this all the time. Oh, what about our golf course? It's, it's supposed to be a Ross course, and I've seen photographs. Uh, there's a club I'm working with, I'm not going to name it, uh, and they, they spent a lot of money upgrading their clubhouse, and they've got this big thing, and they got a famous photograph, they claim, of Donald Ross proving that he was on the grounds, and I know it's not Donald Ross, but, you know, who am I to disabuse him of these notions? So if they ask me, I would tell them, but um, – so, you know, you can speculate all you want. Um, it would be unlikely, I can tell you that, um, but –
0: who knows? Is, is there any truth to the fact that, um, that Donald Ross worked in the shop of Robert Forgan? Do we know that?
1: Again, I, I have not found any evidence of – and there, there may well be a historical record. There's such a great documented history of golf club manufacturing uh, in Scotland – I'm sorry, in St. Andrews that there may be a record of the apprenticeships there. I have not seen it. So uh, I was vague, deliberately, uh, without uh, pretending otherwise in the, in the book. I simply referred to his period of apprenticeship uh, at, at St. Andrews.
0: You bet. So let me ask you this. Let's go a little bit more broad, though. So we, we know he apprenticed for old Tom Morris. Uh, at some point later, he becomes the head pro, clubmaker, and greenkeeper at Dornick. How do you think these experiences shaped Donald Ross, and how did they prepare him for his future?
1: Well— The important point is that golf professionals in those days were widely skilled in a variety of tasks that have now become segmented into completely different silos of professionalism. And I think that they had – all the pros back then were were to some extent adept at these complex uh, skills that um, uh, gave them, I think, a, a comprehensive view. And I think it helped Ross because he had a contact with everyday golfers. He had an understanding of the ground. Uh, he was to go on to become a great experimenter with turf grass. Um, one of the, um, I mean, he used to use turf plots in the town of Pinehurst uh, for trying to cultivate uh, Bermuda grass, uh, for example. So he was always he always had test plots, and he was always interested in agronomy, for example, and and seeds, and so um, he had a wide training, if you will, or familiarity with the whole set of skills required to become a great golf course architect.
0: Well, it it was an experiment or two. I think I love that about him, right? I mean, you you don't, you look at Essex and then you look at Pinehurst or you look at Essex and you look at Seminole and there's a beautiful evolution in his career. And, And one of the things I was going to bring up is in your book, you reference three periods of Donald Ross's evolution as a golf course architect. Is there any way you could walk us through those periods and what aspects of those designs of his designs came out in those periods?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, um, the um, the first period ep- epitomized in uh, Essex County Club was an uh, attention to ground form, uh, grade level. Lots of interesting contours, burying uh, elements like rock or piles of stone uh, and, um, and and tree stumps to create mounds and chocolate drop mounds and all sorts of random pattern of bunkering. Uh, now in those days, uh, you had uh, highly flexed hickory shafts. You had a golf ball uh, that was um, made of uh, the rubber core Haskell ball, but it was you know it wasn't always perfectly round. The golf course would play totally differently between uh, the wet season and the dry season. You didn't have mechanical irrigation. You had maybe some quick couplers where you were hand-watering some of the greens. So the conditions were tremendously. And he was working on his own. Uh, Starting uh, in 1916, 1917, he hires two uh, uh, associates, Walter Hatch and uh, J.B. McGovern, who stayed with him for basically 20 years, And in October of 1920, he hires on a draftsman, a civil engineer named Walter Irving Johnson, who was based in the Pinehurst office. They had a design office above the pro shop at the clubhouse now. Uh, And they had an office there where Walter Irving Johnson would take Ross's field notes and convert them onto topographic maps and grid plans. And there's a clear uh, professionalization of the scale of work of the productivity. Uh, this is part of the post world war one golf boom of the golden age, the 1920s in, in, in 1920, 21, 22 Ross was doing maybe 25 different golf course projects. Uh, he started in 1919, I think it was with a string of, of eight of the 13 us opens held between 1919 and 1931 were held on Ross courses. Uh, He was extremely busy. The Pinehurst Resort was booming. He was churning out these plans. Uh, He had an incredible schedule of travel, and he was managing a lot of these projects by uh, telegram. And he was visiting a site maybe once or twice to do a routing. In some cases, he probably wasn't seeing it at all because his associates can handle it. And so you see a standardization now of, of form, of presentation. The way in which the bunkers are sitting, the, the way in which they're shaped, they're, they're, it's, um, they're not as broken and random. They're a little more forced in terms of their structure. Construction techniques have improved as well. You've got the advent of more mechanical irrigation. Uh, and so this is a, a period where you see a kind of maturing of his work. There's more of a, a turn point emphasis on the holes at 200 yards off the back tee where the dogleg, you know, revolves at the turn point of the fairway that becomes kind of standard Uh, the presentation of bunkers is more in a row or in a line Uh, not necessarily standard left and right but might be an echelon diagonal on the inside of a dogleg or stretched across or offset uh, front right back left Uh, but there's a little more attention to the landing areas and then after 30 31 um, yeah, and you can see this particularly with the evolution of Wanamoysen, which is a golf course that held uh, the PGA. I think it was in 1919 and again in '31, uh, and the changes that went on there. You begin, you're starting with steel shafts. You're getting into the '30s with um, the advent of the sand wedge, which uh, enabled uh, enable players to have much more control over their bunker shots. You're seeing a standardization of his design plans with Ross so that the fairway bunkers, for example, are two and a half to three, three and a half feet deep. The greenside bunkers are three, three and a half, four feet deep. Uh, there's a kind of progressive uh, rationalization on that. He's using fewer bunkers on his golf courses, uh, much more attention to more strategic simplicity of design.
0: Is it, is, do you think that's, it's, Does that relate to the Great Depression? Is that just pragmatism in some part? I think it was
1: pragmatism. Uh, by the mid-30s, he's hardly doing any design work. A lot of those bunkers are getting taken out. So there aren't a lot of plans from the mid-30s on. Um, but you're starting to see that sort of standardization. Uh, you see it with Salem Country Club, for example, uh, which I think was 25 or 1925-26, uh, where you have that standardization going on. So it's an evolution. It's not a direct point. And by the post-World War II era, there were a few designs. There's evidence uh, right here in my hometown, a Hartford Golf Club or Raleigh Country Club, which were among his last designs, where there's a much more uh, Spartan use of bunkering. Uh, That's certainly more mindful of efficiency, of simplicity, and of the evolution of power golf and aerial golf and uh, an accounting of those changes. So – um, I think you sort of see it, uh, that kind of evolution. Uh, and some of his best work you know, straddles that. Rhode Island Country Club is a good example of the early work, as is Essex County. Salem is a great example. Aronemig is a more mixed variation because it evolved and it was meant to be a championship golf course. So is Sayota, uh, which is post-World War One. Has a good mix of the kind of random short bunkering and central bunkering as well as some strategic So there's an evolution of that.
0: When when Donald Ross first came to the United States, his his first design work was first employment was at Oakley. Uh, I'm curious, was the design or redesign of Oakley, was it a pragmatic coincidence, or was he chosen for that when he came over?
1: Um It was entirely coincidental to the visit of a Harvard physics professor named Robert Wilson. Uh, Wilson, by the way, with two L's, not with one. And um, Robert Wilson, I had this documented because I found the ledger at Dornick that documents the week that Robert Wilson spent playing golf at Dornick in early November of 1898. He was then at Oakley Country Club. And he personally invited. He, he comes back to the states, invites Ross to, to come and work at Oakley to be their professional. It was based on a personal relationship. He, um, Ross comes over by himself. He leaves his fiance Janet behind. Doesn't see her for six years.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: And he, yeah, in those days uh, they wrote a lot of letters. And um, he comes back to get her in 1906. Uh, but uh, he comes to Oakley. Uh, and as I understand it, they had a primitive golf course, uh, and, you know, we're, we're, you're catching me here in a podcast where I can't do kind of quick lookup research here. But as I recall, they had a golf course and he evolved it into an 18 hole golf course. Uh, and it was his first, uh, to, sh- to be sure, primitive design. Uh, and, um, that's when he started. So, um, he was the pro, the head ma- the club maker there a little bit, um, and I have Greenkeeper, and then the architect, and he built the golf course with local labor.
0: Donna Ross follows the first wave of foreign golf course architects that shaped the early days of America. Names like Willie Davis, Willie Dunn, Willie Campbell, Alexander right. Finley, Tom Bendelow. And that group, I mean, he's coming right after these folks are, are shaping what golf looks like in America. And it's a very different look than what Ross puts out there. How did Ross stand out from these early American golf, golf course architects?
1: I don't know if he did. Uh, he, had a, he had a better client, that's all. Uh, there, was a, there was a guy uh, who had ran a soda machine company, uh, James Tufts in Boston, who uh, met Ross and uh, was his instructor. And Ross basically met Tufts that way as a golf instructor. And Tufts at the time had this crazy scheme to create a resort retreat in the Carolina Sandhills Interestingly enough, it was originally going to be for tuberculosis, uh, people with tuberculosis. Then they found out that it's communicative, so they had to abandon that. But the original plan—
0: It's it's not going to work out really well for a golf course design if you can catch it.
1: That's right. But uh, Tufts had already bought uh, several thousand acres in the middle of nowhere uh, of an old turpentine farm and um, uh, plantation, and— Then he he puts two and two together, and he says, this guy is smart. I'm learning how to play golf. He's interested. Why don't you come down and spend the winters with me, and and we'll see what we can create. And uh, Ross gets down there uh, after his first full year at Oakley. So he gets down there at – I I can't remember now if it's the end of 1899 or the beginning of 1900 and uh, sets up shop and lives – in a little apartment above what is now the men's clothing store at the center of town. And uh, they had a primitive little golf layout there, and they had a very simple land plan that uh, one of Frederick Law Olmsted's associates, Warren Manning, had laid out. Uh, there's a very famous oval plan for the town that was done and signed by Frederick Law Olmsted, but Olmsted was never there at Pioneers. He sent his fellow, Manning, who did the land plan. And um, that the ba- became the basis for the town. He builds um, a hotel and uh, he starts the golf. And uh, the golf course evolved. The golf courses evolved from there. So the advantage that Ross had was he got to work in sand. Uh, the sand medium, uh, it's you know infinitely pliable. It drains perfectly well. And most of the American courses were not that way. And so the big issue in golf course design The original golf courses were all on links, on reclaimed uh, land from receding ocean. And um, when the real skill of golf architecture was taking bad land and making it work for golf, that was a hard task to learn. So that was a matter of drainage and soil preparation and seedbed preparation. And uh, luckily Ross had the best draining piece of land that he could work with, which was 400 feet of sand. And so the golf courses emerged from there. And those early courses, they were pretty primitive. Uh, they had lots of uh, steeplechase bunkering and yeah, crazy – Yeah, uh, Yes, exactly. Very punitive. Um, and those evolved slowly. So what I believe – and uh, Richard Mandel's book is the source here on the evolution of pioneers in particular. Uh, the golf course architect is based there. He's written – he's documented this much more carefully than I did uh, – the uh, the specific evolution of each of the courses and each of the characteristics of those courses. But Ross was there starting in that winter of uh, 1900 and went – and so um, because of the good air uh, train connections, he could get down there. So he was spending his summers uh, first at Oakley, then he moved up to Essex County Club and uh, he would head down – for the winter, so to speak, in the early November, and he'd spend his winters there, and he'd come back in April when the golf season opened up in New England.
0: Folks at home, I just want to let you know, we're not going to do a deep dive into Pinehurst because I think it deserves its own podcast, but we're going to hit I'm going to hit on some points with Bradley here uh, just to get his thoughts on some certain questions revolving around Pinehurst. So one of them is this. Uh, Ross and Pinehurst are almost impossible to separate. Uh, even today, when you go through the village of Pinehurst, you can feel Donald Ross, or at least I can. They certainly had a mutual beneficial relationship. Bradley, in your mind, who gained more from that relationship? Tough question, perhaps.
1: Well, that doesn't have to have an answer. I think uh, the point is they both gained a lot. I, I tell you what, what Ross gained was a lot of clients. Uh, and all of this, that was his advertising. In other words, uh, the Phones family was coming down there. Uh, wealthy folks from the Midwest were coming down there. So we had a client base that would see the course i would see this man uh, he was the courses were evolving uh now here's the interesting thing people don't realize this pinehurst did not have grass greens until 1935
0: yeah i was going to mention that later but you're right it's uh, most people couldn't even fathom that what what's the story why why did it happen 35 there's a good story for that but there was a championship that followed were those two linked
1: oh absolutely um the modern golf course that people now know as Pinehurst Number 2 did not – it evolved slowly. It, it uh, first came around around 19, 1910, I think it was, uh, when that routing was was deployed. In those days, it incorporated holds that are now part of the Number 7 course that Reese jones did. But the golf course assumed gradually in pieces, stage by stage, uh, which I have the evolution of in the book um, and uh, – it's interesting to document, but it didn't achieve its present form with uh, holes uh, four and five becoming part of the number two course and abandoning a couple of holes that were now part that are now part of number seven. It didn't achieve that until uh, the eve of the nineteen thirty six PGA Championship, which was held at Pinehurst, and for that championship, Ross finally got them to build grains of grass rather than sand that would uh, hold up under the conditions of the winter. The difficulty of Bermuda was it would go dormant in the winter. It was extremely difficult to maintain. He actually had a test plot on the front of the Holly Inn. Go,
0: go into that history a little bit with the, how it, it became a breeding ground for grass.
1: Well, it was a plot of a quarter acre maybe, and uh, they had irrigation. And so the whole town was essentially devoted to cultivating the game. And um, the, in the area in front of what's now the Gibbon Library, uh, he had a test plot. He had test plots all over the place, actually. and uh, But that was a particularly aggressive one, and he was trying to get a, a, a version— of Bermuda that would hold up, uh, that they could, um, I think that the, the real issue was the overseeding. They had to develop, they could get Bermuda to last for a little while in the summer, uh, but it died off. And then what to do during the winter trade, because that's when most of the golfers were coming there, the high volume trade. And so they had to get an acceptable turf grass. And so they really had to cultivate a, a form of rye grass that would uh, take quick, and establish and be usable and and, and maintainable at at enough height. So what's interesting is those grains that people know as Pinehurst didn't evolve until their present shape until 1935. And what's really important, and I tried to document this, and it's a big issue of discussion, and um, and Dunlop White out of... um, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, has documented this as well, and I first learned it from Pete Dye. What is now known as the turtleback greens of Pinehurst, they were not what Ross designed for the 36 PGA. Those greens have, have come up a foot or two, maybe even more, at the center. And that evolved. So the irony is that people who have played a little bit of Ross or they've watched on TV and they've seen the U.S. Opens that have been held at Pinehurst, And they think, wow, these turtleback greens are amazing. They repel the ball. They're um, con uh, vex, and they repel shots outward. That's typical of us. No, it was not typical of us. It became a characteristic of that number two course, and it's unique to number two. It's not characteristic. Now, how did that evolve? That's a long story. I tried to document that. But essentially, those greens have been rebuilt about five or six times. There's a ton of top dressing. And one of the things that Ross learned from his old uh, master at Old at St. Andrews was, you know, what, the great tr- cure for everything was more sand. So they top dress like crazy. And when you top dress, it builds up. Now, what, what we now know is those grains at Pinehurst, those turtleback grains, they have built up over the years and they're about two feet now at center, higher than they used to be. And that's a combination of years and decades of top dressing of sand splash from the surrounding bunkers that built up and also kind of construction reconstruction techniques, particularly in the seventies and eighties that were uh, a little bit clumsy and heavy handed uh, to the point where they have uh, essentially been perched up at a higher grade with more severity uh, than was the case before. And they've become so, uh, tightly associated with Pinehurst, that when Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw did their restoration of the golf course, when they took out acres and acres of rough, this was in 2012, and they took out thousands of trees and re- reclaimed the fairways and all that, they were really reluctant to touch the greens. Uh, there was a little bit of modification to two or three parts of surfaces. You know, the 15th green was real severe. They they knocked down a tiny bit, but they didn't really want to take the air out, so to speak, of that. And, they, and so they, they've... And there's still an ongoing discussion. I've had this conversation all the time uh, with the folks at Pinehurst. Some of them claim that uh, that's how Ross designed it. But I've seen the photographs and looked at it and tried to figure it out. And I think and a lot of people think uh, that those greens are about two feet higher and a little more intense than Ross intended them to be. And that's the character of the golf course. So that's evolved, But that's not uh, uh, characteristic of Ross. It's unique to number two.
0: Well, I mean that's it brings up a great point because of all the great things of that relationship between Pinehurst and Donald Ross, you could say that's potentially a bad thing. Uh, that because uh, the number two and the the crowned or tortoiseshell greens, however people refer to per, per, uh, refer to them, they've helped promote a false representation of Donald Ross's green designs that we see and later golf course restorations, call it 60s, 70s, 80s, of golf courses all around the United States. Would you say that's fair, that, that the, the legend of, you know, this is the kind of green he builds just kind of spreads wildfire? Nope.
1: That's not the that's case. That's not true. Nope. All right. No, not that's at all. It's, not it's what not I run among- into
0: with club memberships where they think their greens need to be, you know, crowned.
1: Oh, oh, you're asking about whether – no. It, that's the uninformed judgment. Yep. And it's probably yep. uh, kind of a knee-jerk reaction among unexperienced architects. But that's not what I've seen with the people who know what they're doing.
0: Uh, that Yes. And I'm referring to this, you know, your pre-restoration era, the true restoration. Yep. I'm talking about those times before when we were making changes. Uh, Sarah Bay is a great example of this. Sarah Bay's putting greens before Chris Spence were – You could not keep a ball on those greens uh, with, I mean, they were all crowned to an extreme. Now, Chris Spence has leveled many of them, if not all of them, put them into realistic uh, representations of what the holes were like. But they were built under the model of, you know, Dal Ross crowned his greens. They should repel the ball.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And that's partly a function of years of aggressive top dressing. Sure. Uh, It's also a misunderstanding about the nature of the surrounds because one of the things that's great about Pinehurst, number two, is that if the ball rolls off, it's still perfectly playable on dry ground because it's all sand everywhere around. Whereas if you combine those kind of turtleback grains with clay soil surrounds, uh, now you got a mess because clay doesn't drain as well. And most of the courses that tried to emulate that that approach to greens ended up with essentially uh, a flop shot wedge back to a pop-up green, which had nothing to do with Ross. So uh, I can see your point, And it's a, it's a real tragedy if people think that that's what Ross was, because it's the combination of the perch green with the surrounds where you could chip, putt, or do anything you wanted and had a lot of options. So over the years, certainly what's happened is that the greens that Ross built, you know, in those days, in the 20s and 30s, your mowing heights for greens were just under a quarter of an inch. If you had them on a stint meter, they'd be about four, four and a half, or five. Uh, as mowing heights came, and and, and you were concerned with a lot, to get the water off those greens, he, he created a lot of pitch. So four, five, six percent slopes were not uncommon. You can handle four, five, six percent slopes when your greens are being, being cut at a quarter inch. But when you come down to modern mowing heights of an eighth of an inch or a tenth of an inch, Then those four, five, six percent slopes are unplayable. The ball never comes to a stop. So you've had to sort of soften those greens to some extent. But to think that that kind of slope is characteristic of Ross or somehow a benefit or an asset is ridiculous.
0: I could be wrong, but I I truly believe the common golfer, the non historian, the non architect thinks, and that's what I'm trying to spell. The people are listening right now. When you're thinking of Donald Ross, you think of Piners number two. That's really not what he did. And that's what I'm trying to get at.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that's certainly the case.
0: So let me let, we go one more question on Pinehurst and we'll, we'll move on here. But um, I, I think you kind of hit on this. But would, would Donald Ross be as well known across the country without the, the marketing machine of Pinehurst? You know, even to this day, I think every golfer seems to know seems to know Donald Ross, while few know the names of Dr. Alistair McKenzie and even less so McDonald and Raynor. Do you think on top of the fact that there was so much um, winter traffic uh, coming into the Pinehurst, but Pinehurst also did an amazing job marketing their resort? They might be the best at it. Do you think that led to that?
1: Oh, no. uh, Absolutely. Uh, You know, um, how many people get to play Cypress Point or uh, National Golf Links or Augusta National compared to? uh, I mean, People would know Augusta
0: National if we didn't have the Masters or very few would.
1: But if you look at the, the marketing techniques of Pinehurst, were brilliant. I covered this some in my book. Uh, they had a they hired a, a New York advertising agency, and they used this character. They called it Putter Boy, but the caricature was a smiling little guy. you could see him with golf clubs in Grand Central Station, about to t- or Penn Station, taking a train down. There was always, by the way, there was a direct train from New York to uh, Aberdeen, South Carolina, that stopped in uh, Pinehurst. So they had direct train connections. They had a marketing machine. They borrowed this little icon from British cricket. Uh, the the, the Putterboy character was taken from British uh, cricket uh, magazine. Um, and um, they also had a succession of great tournaments. They created the North-South, for example. They uh, had men's and women's tournaments. They had amateur events. They did a great job of, you know, they had Annie Oakley uh, riding her horse and shooting and doing gallery uh, exhibitions. I did not know that.
0: That's amazing.
1: That, yeah so they did an amazing job all through the war of World War 1 and 2 of promoting particularly World War 1 of, of establishing this as the major um stopover uh, in the south uh, they had professional tournaments there and uh they you know they had the PGA they had the Ryder Cup in 51 they did a great job more than any other and you had a four course facility as well uh, in those days they, the, the fifth course came after World War 2 uh and um, the uh, they had four courses. Anybody could play them. Uh, they rented out houses for the season. Uh, they made a big stake, a uh, big show of, of their commitment to amateur golf. Women's golf was big. And uh, with the addition of the Mid Pines and Pine Needles resorts down the road, which were independently owned but also designed by Donald Ross, you had six great courses that people could associate with the, the – the uh, Sandhills region or with Pinehurst generally. So yeah, I think it was a great marketing effort and Ross himself uh, was very busy as a marketing genius in the 1920s. He was the highest paid professional in all of golf. He made more than Walter Hagen. That's
0: amazing. Uh, Didn't know that until I read your book, by the way. Didn't know that.
1: He had a he was he had a club making affiliation. He had a seed affiliation construction. Uh, at one point, he he uh, he was promoting um, himself as the you know the sort of master of all, and he was doing a lot of design work. His U.S. Open courses were getting a, a lot of prominence uh, attention as well. So uh, the result was, I think, a good synthesis or uh, synergy if, synergy if you will. The other thing don't 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 forget uh, in 1921 Ross buys a half share of the Pine Crest Inn. That's a little hotel in town. He was co-owner of that and uh, actually never made any money. Uh, the hotel business was tough. Pinehurst uh, was a dry town until 1961.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. So I, the, when I'm having a drink in the bar last month, that was not originally there. <laughs> no,
1: no. So he, he was co-owner of the Pinecrest Inn uh, for 20 years, really struggled all the time. And One of the things that's great, he's the most famous golf professional uh, architect in the world. They're using him on all his promotional, and they had a treasure of the company with a great name. It comes out of a Dickens novel. His name was I.C. Sledge. I.C. Sledge was the treasurer, And he's continually dunning Ross. Uh, his phone payments are behind. He's got to make his electrical payments. He's not keeping up with the utilities. He's harassing him the whole time because the Pinehurst Resort started struggling uh, in the late 20s, and by the time the Depression Trade was really a problem. And so uh, it was a very interesting thing where Ross was this big professional. He was traveling all over and, and trains everywhere. Uh, but he was basically losing money on the, on his operation at the Pinecrest then at the time. So he's he's actually competing with the Pioneer's Resort.
0: Right. If you right. can imagine that. Love it.
1: It was one of those great ironies. And these letters and telegrams from I.C. Sledge to Ross about, you know, you're way behind. They threatened to cut off phone You know, Ross lived at I think it was 110 Midland Road, the famous house to the left of the third hole on the number two course. And uh, at one point, Icy Sledge threatens to turn off electricity to the house if he won't pay the utility bill on the Pinehurst Inn.
0: Icy Sledge. I love that name. I love it. Oh, that's just so good. All right. So let me ask you this. Now, um, moving on from from Pinehurst here, I'm not sure if there's any documented evidence of this, um, but I have to get your take on this. Uh, there is a tale out there, and it's, uh, I've seen it on the Pinehurst Resort uh, website, that Donald Ross had a handshake deal or an understanding with Bob Jones that he was going to become the architect of Augusta National. I was wondering if you could set the record straight on that as, as much as you know about it.
1: There's absolutely no evidence. It's complete and total utter nonsense. Is that right? Uh, I love it. Well, here's the could first you thing. Could be more direct, he,
0: uh, though, Bradley? I'm just kidding. I
1: could, but it, uh, <laughs> we, have, we have to maintain our R rating here. That's right. Yeah, that's I'll, right. I, you're forgetting something. Ross already had an affiliation in Augusta. having Yeah,
0: Country Club. Yeah.
1: Having, having uh, designed the second course, the Hill Course, at the Augusta Country Club. Plus, he was the golf professional representing the Bonomi Hotel, which is now the nursing home across the street from that famous little hotel in Pinehurst, in Augusta. He had a relationship. He was already there. There is Now, Bob Jones was uh, a frequent guest at uh, the Pinehurst Resort. He was there some, uh, but there's absolutely no evidence. He was enamored with Cypress Point when Bob Jones missed, uh, was bumped out of the U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach in 1929. He went down the road to play Cypress, fell in love with it, Contacted. Also, and he
0: played Passio Tempo, right, with uh, Marion Hollins in that same trip. Open the course. Uh, I,
1: I, I didn't realize that. Good. Yeah. Good for him. So he, once the uh, plans for the Fruitland Nursery in Augusta came about, uh, McKenzie was their guy. McKenzie was the – he sent Marion Hollins. Uh, there's a whole story there about McKenzie never got paid. It was very bitter about that. But there's no evidence whatsoever of Ross's – promised, whatever. It's one of those uh, canards that yeah. circulates for which there is Brad- nothing.
0: Bradley anywhere. Klein setting the record straight, folks. I love it. That's great. I, I, you know, I've heard it so many times. It's it's kind of like you get this about history. These whispers in history become lore, they become legend, and then we assume they're fact because they're said so many times over and over and over. And when you go back to research it, a lot of times there's nothing, there's no basis behind it. You see it over and over, and this apparently is one of those times. Yep. All right, so let's let's jump into uh, Ross the Architect. Uh, who or what influenced Donald Ross? Like, where did he draw up his inspirations when he's designing the best of his golf courses?
1: I don't know. What do you mean? Um, he's trying to get from point A to point B. And so, there's so there's no, like,
0: uh, for instance, you know, uh, there's so many golf courses out there that are um, – I, like Augusta National is an homage to St. Andrews, right? There's there's uh, Charles yes, Blair MacDonald and his his uh, uh, homage holes or temple holes, as some people call them. Is there any of that in, in Donald Ross's work? Let's go that way. No. By the way,
1: uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, he saw a lot, but there was a lot he didn't see. Uh, and by the way, uh, I'll just throw this in because no one's going to ask me about this. Huh, it yeah, might be please. interesting to ask. Why was Donald Ross – he never did a golf course uh, – well, there's maybe nine holes he did. He did nothing of substance on Long Island. Uh, I try- I was trying to find out if he ever even saw the National, and I think he did, uh, or, and Shinnecock. But he wasn't one to be wowed or heavily uh, uh, enam- enamored with something. His experience is from the land that he walked as a kid at Dornet. It's from St. Andrews. It's from Making Workable Holes. He wasn't um, someone who read widely. He wasn't immersed in the tradition of landscape architecture. Um, he doesn't seem to have had any references in his books to, to famous courses done by other architects. Uh, he's a very practical guy. He's trying to make things work. He's trying to get from A to B to C and get back to the clubhouse by 18. So he had a fantastic ability to walk a piece of land and see how holes would work. And he could do that in a day, sketching it out as he went, putting it down on paper, going back, formulating it. And then he had a very nice little system of the grid plan uh, in 10-yard squares where everything fitted. So I think he was essentially a practical man. And he developed – this is one of the things that – a little controversial. He kind of developed an assembly line approach. He was like the Henry Ford of golf design. That's the only way – well, people on golf club atlas don't like to recognize this because they think that all golf course design is sort of handcrafted in the in the dirt. Uh, Ross was trying to move on and efficiently, uh, and he had to corral large crews uh, of somebody else's uh, who, that, that somebody else had hired. You know, he only had a small crew. He had a uh, his whole life. He had two design associates in the field. He had Walter Hatch and J. B. McGovern. He had a civil engineer from 1920. Walter Erdman Johnson. He had a secretary, Eric Nelson. That's it. And they ran the operation. Now, one of the odd things uh, is that p- just before his death, uh, he instructed his secretary, Eric Nelson, to burn all the correspondence, and a lot of it was lost.
0: Really? we don't I did know not how- know that. Wow, why?
1: Yeah. Uh, who knows? Um, I, maybe it was standard practice, afraid of a lawsuit, didn't want to burden his family. It's not clear what or how much of that work was lost. Uh, Eric Nelson himself, the secretary who carried out some of that, but not a lot of it, um, was uh, ended up retired in Pinehurst. I think he lived there until the early 60s. I met his, I can't remember if it was his son or grandson. Uh, when I was doing the book, uh, I sat, met, met his relative, and I tried to get a feel for what had happened, and he wasn't sure as well. Most of the, many of the plans in the Pinehurst archives, you know, the, the Tufts archives at the Gibbon Memorial library. A lot of that came from the clubs themselves, rather than from the offices and the, um, uh, workspace that Ross had, uh, because he, he was kind of moving all the time. He had, um, he had his office in Pinehurst above the clubhouse. He had a secondary satellite office, uh, up in new England. He had, in one of his houses, whether he was living at Essex or he moved to Worcester, then he moved to um, uh, near, um, in the Brookline area, um, Newton, the Newton Center. And then after 25, I think it was um, – well, he kept that house actually uh, in Newton Center. And then uh, his uh, – summer house in Rhode Island and seconded Compton, a little Compton. So that office was kind of peripatetic. It was uh, pieces all over the place. And I think a lot of that stuff was lost, but once he was designing his golf courses, uh, through the designs topography that Eric Nelson and particularly his civil engineer, Walter Irving Johnson were doing, they would create five sets of plans, one for the office, one for the club, one for the superintendent, one for the contractor and one extra one. And uh, that's became the the resource base for the, the Tufts archives. So while there are a lot of letters, uh, many of them are one directional. So there's a lot that's missing that was lost, that was probably burnt uh, for whatever reason. Um, and I obviously, you can never know what that is.
0: In your book, Discovering Donald Ross, uh, which, by the way, folks, you can get at www.discoveringdonaldross.com. Did I get that right, Bradley? Yeah. You make... An argument that he regretted becoming as big as he did from a from an industrious kind of standpoint, can you elaborate on that? It was one of his regrets you said
1: yeah, uh, well, in the 1920s there were some years I think I have the chart in there, um, but i 've seen it elsewhere uh, there was, He was doing as many as twenty five or thirty golf courses a year uh, in the 1920s that 's hard to do when you 're traveling by train he didn 't fly uh, by airplane uh, except I, I actually document, he, when he was looking at Euronymic, he flew around on a little uh, tiny airplane over the site, but he traveled city to city by, by rail. And so that meant that he could only get to a place at a certain time and move on, and his schedule was really rigorous, so he didn't have the ability to follow through. Uh, and that's particularly, I, I give, I'll give, give you a great example. In uh, California, what was then called Beresford Country Club, now it's called Peninsula Golf and Country Club in San Mateo, California. It's the only golf course that Ross did, did west of the, the Rockies. And I, you know, I I was able to trace through very carefully year by year his trail. He did a couple of courses in Denver, uh, one in Topeka. He did Cedar Rapids. But in the western half of the United States, almost nothing. And in California, or west of the Rockies, only one. He did it in 1922. In 1922, his wife... Janet had died. She died of breast cancer in February. He goes into a funk. He uh, kind of falls off a little bit. Uh, goes west for, th- I think, three or four weeks on a trip to the west coast to see some golf courses. Pretty sure he met McKenzie. There's a famous photo I've seen of the two of them sitting there. Uh, meets a few people. Gets one design assignment. He does the, the design work for a big fee, very big fee. I think it was $10,000 for, for his time there. He lays out the golf course in August of 22 and leaves. And the golf course starts construction the next spring. He never sees it.
0: Wow.
1: So that's a Ross course. It's a very good course. But he has no connection to it beyond having done the original design. That was not unusual. Now, that's a documented case. Um, And he's not alone. You know, uh, Alistair McKenzie never saw Royal Melbourne. He laid it out.
0: Laid it out and left. Yeah, I was just going to say, are there any telltale signs of Donald Ross's personal involvement in a Donald Ross course? Like, did he leave fingerprints, his fingerprints behind on the courses that he spent time on or came back to?
1: Well, as a historian, the best fingerprints are his letters, uh, handwritten notes, uh, follow-up commentary. Uh, you know, he was at Northland in Duluth, uh, Minnesota. I know exactly the day he was there. Cause I have a letter from, him. he's leaving Detroit. There's a, an account in the newspaper. So th- there are indications of he was there and he makes notes about changes. And there were many courses where he followed up, uh, and wrote commentary on it. But if you're talking about a distinctive trait, what in the design, in the field itself, that's harder to determine because the whole process of building a golf course is such a protracted one uh, involving dozens, if not hundreds, of people. That, you know, uh, here's an example. He often, we talked about this last time, uh, he often built a short par three with a kind of thumbprint and uh, surrounded by bunkers. I can see that many times. Uh, he built a par five. Uh, with an alt with uh offset bunkering and a lot of second shot hazards, you know, eighty, ninety yards short of the green. Um, he often built a short par four of about three hundred and ten, three hundred and twenty. That was extremely heavily bunkered around the green. But if you're talking about specific more than that, no.
0: Yeah. Um, so those would be his his quote unquote if you're going to call it template holes that you might see. It's not a guarantee you're going to see them on every course. But he had certain holes that you might see from time to time that had certain uh, strategic characteristics. Is that fair?
1: Well, yeah, but it wasn't as just, you know, Pete Dye, for example, once he got going, he had had a lot uh, into the mid late 70s or early 80s, a lot of of, uh, sleeper tie, railroad sleepers. He almost always finished his golf course with a par five, par three, island green, four par along the water sequence. Almost always did that. Uh, You don't find that with Ross. Now, now having said that, I'm trying to think of a Ross course, for example, that even Eastlake ends in a par three, but there's a dispute about whether Ross did that. Um, It's often said he opened his courses with a gentle four par. Uh, That's probably the case, but I've seen 440-yard opening holes that he did as well. So... uh, I think he was too practical, and the carrying out of the instructions to build would have been in the hands of so many different diverse crews. And that so the quality would have varied dramatically from one to the next.
0: Let me ask you this. So, of the 400 and some golf courses that you attribute to Donald Ross, how many of those would you estimate that he had a very strong involvement in the design? I think you mentioned this a little bit. I think bit. I covered this.
1: Yeah, it's basically, uh, and I can't go more than conjecture on this, but it's about one-third, one-third. Uh, so that I think I estimate, with good reason, that about one-third of the courses he saw through where he designed it, uh, was involved, and came back. About one-third he laid out and sent plans in or sent his people, and one-third he might have designed off of a topo or had his own associates do the work for which he took credit.
0: And, and you were saying before, you, in your mind are they indistinguishable from the remaining 300 and some courses or 285 courses or whatever that is? Can you, can you feel a discernible difference from a course where he spent a lot of time on the land versus one that he's working off of topography?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I really have to go through in considerable detail. Um,
0: I, I think Me it's your too. next I mean, book like this. Uh, <laughs> after Herbert Warren Wind. That's your next book, right?
1: I always like to say, by the way, uh, that the most severe grains at Pinehurst Number Two are the two that were closest to his house—the third and the fifth—because uh, he could watch what was going on. He'd go out there and tinker quite a bit. He tinkered with Number Two, by the way, all the time. He had yeah. a superintendent there who was there forever, Frank Maples. And one of the one of the confounding things about Number Two, course. There's no design plans. Nobody's ever seen them because he didn't have to do anything in terms of drawing. He'd go out there with Frank Maples and they they would they would tinker. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think you mentioned in the book, too, uh, even during the Great Depression, I can't I can't believe whether it was Tufts or not. So somebody was talking to him about let's conserve the budget. Don't do this. Don't do this. And then you basically said he went out and did it anyway because he felt it was the right thing to do.
1: Well, but, you know, it's a great question you ask about the quality. I'll give you this example, and I learned this from Kyle Franz. Kyle Franz is a young architect uh, who's doing a lot of good work. He worked for uh, Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw on the reshaping of number two, and then he went, Kyle did, uh, went down the road to do the restoration of mid-pines, and now he's working across the street at uh, Pine Needles. And here is a golf area with three golf courses all done by, ross particularly number two mid pines and pine and, and uh, pine needles and they vary totally now ross would have had to be involved all the time because he lived on that road so pine number two has a lot of open space sand scratched out areas and very intense greens and surrounds mid pines is even more demanding because it was designed essentially as kind of a private club champions course even though it was associated with the hotel. And it has a lot of forced carries, elevated grains. It doesn't have anything like the ground game that number two has. And then you go across the road to pine needles on a broader scale of shots where you have playing into hills. It's much more elevated. It's much more uh, strategic. It was built five or six years after mid pines. You couldn't think of three golf courses, all done by Ross, that differed more dramatically on the same basic, uh, plots of land. So that to me is a real testament to what happens when he poured himself into a project.
0: Yeah. Speaks of his genius, doesn't it? Hey, you do, I he think didn't so. duplicate anything. He just found you know creative ways to, you know, create new strategic holes, which is great.
1: Now and, and to get back to your <laughs> excuse me, to get back to your question, yep. it's a really good one about attention. One of the problems is we're looking at these courses 50, 60, 70 years after Ross did them. So, True.
0: yeah, you know, great point.
1: O- o- Oakland Hills was never uh, by the time it became a famous golf course uh, in the 51 US Open and, and all the majors and Ryder Cup and PGA's afterwards, it's not anything like what Ross designed. So we can't judge that one, for example. Sciota has changed completely. It was all the grades were adjusted by Dick Wilson in 1961 when they raised the fairway bunkers and raised the greens and Built all new features, so it's hard to. See. You'd have to go back to a golf course that was hardly touched to see. That's why I like going back to whitensville and to ujica as examples. These are courses. Uh, the Orchards in South Hadley, Massachusetts, is another great example. Uh, and I I loved playing there when I was in graduate school. I would take the bus down on the five college with my golf clubs and disembark at at, at the Orchards. And I was thrilled when they got a women's open in two thousand four. Uh, And the players loved that place. It was one of those places that was broke, never had a penny, couldn't tinker with anything, and you could see all the character in the ground.
0: You know, this leads into uh, our listener questions. We have four listener questions. Uh, Tim Shermer from the uh, Society of Golf Historians' uh, private Facebook page asks, Ross designed so many courses that have been tinkered with over the years. At what point is a Ross course no longer considered his design?
1: Uh, it's a great question and sadly um, the answer is w- um, when they built new holes or when the grains got shrunk to the point where they no longer present a certain percentage of the surface that he provided um, but it's a great question and I think that um, it's a bit like you know you have a if you happen to have a, a a Frank Lloyd Wright house and you add a, a, a den on the back and then you put a pool in and then you change the roof line cause it doesn't handle the snow properly. So at what point is that a Frank Lloyd Wright house? So the answer is at some point it's no longer a Ross course. And, uh, that's a great, you know, it's one of those. Now in many cases, you can bring it back. That's Absolutely. the lucky thing.
0: Yeah. But when they sometimes you hole, can't, right? Sometimes it's, they've rerouted the whole thing and it's, it's gone forever.
1: Well, then you do what Gil Hans did at Sakonit after Cornish rerouted a couple of the holes on the, uh, I think it was in the middle of the back nine and kind of botched this integrity. And when Gil got there, I I think it was about 12 years ago, uh, there was an opportunity to build some new holes down by the water. And so he tried to create Ross-like holes, even though they were on new land, in order to get rid of the, the botched holes that had been imposed that's exactly what andrew green did at inverness very creatively
0: yeah i mean gil hans did that with uh, charles blair mcdonald at sleepy hollow as well just creating you had a tilling hast mcdonald kind of molded yeah. the together course and he just said all right well let's just make it mcdonald-esque and did yeah. a fantastic now- job with that i agree And by the way,
1: Gil had a great line. Uh, I'm involved with him at Worcester Country Club. Uh, Right now, it's just a matter of forward tees, but there's a very smart master plan there to undo a a terrible green that was built uh, in the 60s, I think it was, and a lot of trees came out, and the the kind of classical, craggy New England features are coming back. And um, he was asked at one of the meetings whether he was an expert in Donald Ross. And he said, no, he was an expert at what Donald Ross had done at Worcester. Oh, and I love that response.
0: Yeah, great answer. Great answer. Yeah, it was um, perfect. Uh, yeah.
1: And he's someone who really studied. Now, there's an example of a golf course where the holes are essentially in place. It's all there. And it's a matter of just teasing it back. And, um, you know, it's they're on their way. Um, and it's a matter of moving forward, with the, I think, with, with a great plan. So you have to study what you have now purists could argue uh, with other courses for example where they rerouted that oh it's no longer a Donald Ross well you could fight you know you could fight you could argue for example Inverness is no longer a Donald Ross or actually kind of Tillinghast as well there was Dick Wilson then the four new holes that Fazio now they're gone what is it well Andrew Green tried to make the new holes that they created on on, uh, uh, the adjoining land as close to what Ross's character had been. Uh, so you could argue about the nomenclature, but the intent there to me is, is a, a really profound one. What, what I never want to do, just because it's no longer a pure Ross course doesn't mean uh, that you give up on that as a project. And I think there's too much cynicism. I've seen this. Pete Dye did it, of all people, and I have the greatest respect for Pete. He just passed away. I loved him. Uh, written beautifully about him, but you would never want him to do a restoration. And and what he did at Delray Beach at Gulfstream Gulfstream, uh, was amazing because there had been some modest changes and some of the the center lines had changed, a few of the T's. And because the small things had changed, he said, well, you couldn't do a restoration anyway. And then he went and created a lot more aggressive mounding. Same thing that he did with a Ross course, a country club of Birmingham in Alabama on the west course. And that's a kind of cynical approach that you use to justify what you want to do. But I don't think it's really uh, helpful if you're trying to do a restoration. So while it's, it's a, the golf course has changed uh, that you still, I think have a moral and aesthetic and historical obligation to bring back as much as that character as you can, even if you're doing something on new ground and um, you know, Um, So there you are.
0: Yeah. I've got uh, two questions from Michael Sherman. We'll go with the first one. Excluding Pinehurst, what did Ross consider his finest design? Do we even know that?
1: He was very high on a Ronamink, Oakland Hills. I'm going by uh, memory of his little pamphlet book, uh, Golf Has Never Failed Me, that Ron Whitten edited. Um, So off the top of my head, I know he's very, Ross was very proud, particularly of Eronomink and Oakland Hills in that, as uh, really strong examples of championship testing uh, golf courses. Yeah, those are two. And I also think, I think he was really proud of how he solved drainage issues at Seminole. He wrote about that a lot. Um, Getting water off that golf course on a low-lying... That was a big achievement. So those are three.
0: Um, He had another question. I think you might have we might have gone into this a little bit, but uh, did Ross have a favorite course that he didn't design? I think you touched on this a little bit, but I'll I'll let it be.
1: Um, I think he was modest enough, or whatever, not to have acknowledged that. Um, Yeah, but one of the things that I found disappointing is I could never find his writings that helped illuminate what he was doing. Uh the status of that manuscript by Ron Witten, uh edited, uh, Golf Has Never Failed Me, I always I found it pretty um anodyne, very uh kind of not very helpful. Yeah, it makes you uh, makes uh, you
0: question oh. what we lost when he burnt those papers, right? Exactly. Oh. Yeah.
1: I'm not question I'm not questioning what Ron Witten did. I'm questioning the Ross was not someone Uh, I'll put it this way. Not every athlete you interview has any, has something interesting to say. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Ross was not very interesting about explaining his own work. And I tried in in, in the book, I was more interested in what I could find rather than what he said about his work. It was not very helpful.
0: That's good to know. Um, Last question from Mark Larson. Uh, Ross was so effective on smaller acreages that don't play small. How did Ross accomplish this?
1: uh that's a great question uh he had an unbelievable the, the, the there were two great skill sets that he had that that beat out all the other competitors at the time and the first one that no one's ever asked me about he was the only one of his colleagues who was still sober and standing at 5 p.m so <laughs> oh, sorry everybody else was good. kind
0: of a lush yeah, yeah.
1: everybody else was a lush that's how he why he did 410 courses and they all did you know 40 each
0: was he a teetotaler
1: no, 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 he wasn't a teetotaler, but he lived in a dry town and, yeah, uh, there weren't a lot of places, but he had a scotch in the evening. Yeah. yeah.
0: Or early. He, evening. he was Scottish for crying out loud. Of course he drank a little,
1: but that was a joke. The, uh, <laughs> or a true, the, the real issue is he had an amazing ability to cram a lot of golf into a small space and make it work. Um, and, and, um, I'm thinking of up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Barton Hills Country Club is a great—I think that's what it's called. Barton Creek, Barton Creek Country Club, Barton Hills, Barton Hills in um, Ann Arbor. It's a great example. Uh, Franklin Hills is another one uh, on a fairly small site. The way in which kind of holes nestled into—they look like um, you know baby shrimp next to lobsters, next to scallops in a in a, a plate of fish—and he made it all work. In a way that you could go, that's a bad image, but um, the uh, everything nestled in perfectly. And it, he was so good at giving you a walkable site, tight connections from green to tea, and uh, without wasting space. And he could use triangles, he could do squares, he could fill up a space in a way that no other architect, I think, uh, could with intimacy and grace. And I, that was his greatest skill, I think, of routing a golf course.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. That's a great way to end it. Uh, folks, you're lucky enough to listen to Donald Ross expert, even though he may not call him that, himself that, Bradley Klein. Bradley, thank you so much for joining us now on the 28th episode of the Talking Golf History podcast.
1: Uh, it's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, maybe I should go write all this down and sell another book. I think but... you should.
0: Uh, folks, we only touched on the surface of Donald Ross in this podcast. The legendary golf course architect deserves his own miniseries which if you give me enough time, I'll build for you. Separate podcasts involving Essex County Club and Pinehurst are brewing in my head already. If you want more information in the short term, I cannot over-recommend purchasing Bradley Klein's book, Discovering Donald Ross, which you can find at www.discoveringdonaldross.com. Buy it, read it, and share your thoughts with me on the Society of Golf Historians' Twitter and Facebook page. Until the next time... Yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.